we're starting into our new series. This is Eastertide right now. Lent is over and we're into the Easter season, which goes till Pentecost. But we went ahead and dove into our, um, our book study early. Normally we'll, go, we'll, we'll do a study between now and Pentecost and then in Pentecost we'll pick up our long study that goes all the way till November. But this year we dove in early. So we're into our study that we're going to stay in clear till November. Um, and we're, we decided after doing Lent, you know, Lent, we talked about all these covenants from the Old Testament that just kind of keep zeroing down as we progress through um, these Old Testament covenants, all the way down to Isaiah, which, who talks about this suffering servant, this, this one person who the, everything is going to hinge on, everything's going to revolve around, and he's going to be um, this, the, the, this, this person that the Jews called the Messiah, um, that we call the Christ. Um, and he, everything was going to, all the covenants were going to kind of come together in this one person. And so I knew I wanted to do a study that really centered around Jesus um, in, a, in kind of a direct way, not in kind of an indirect you know, um, way, but that we directly talked about Jesus as a person himself. And that led us to, um, to Matthew. There's five um, kind of sermons or lengthy teachings that Jesus gives. We call them the five discourses of Matthew. Um, and I just thought it'd be fun to just go through them and see what Jesus talked about. And so we've got the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to start tonight. Um, we've got the parabolic um, discourse, which is all the parable. He teaches uh, just parable after parable after parable. Um, the ecclesiological discourse, which is where he talks about what it means to be the church and the way the church does a few things. The missionary discourse, when he sends the, the disciples out, he talks about what, it, what it's like to go out and spread the gospel and things we have to remember when we do that. And then the uh, um, eschatological discourse, um, which is the end times thing, Matthew 24 and 25, one of my least favorite passages in all the scriptures. So it's going to be fun to dive into that and see what we come up with, because normally I stay away from that one because it scares me. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what we find there um, as we study together. So if you want to read along, um, we'll be in the book of Matthew for quite a while. So... Um, what we talked about last week, as we kind of did our intro, is we discussed how these teachings somehow, um, there's this conversation Peter has with Jesus where Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they come up with all these ideas and he says, yeah, but who, what do you say? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we talked about how Peter comes to this conclusion before there was a resurrection, before he got to see a risen Savior, where it's a little bit hard to deny at that point, this is something just off of Jesus' life, his teachings, the miracles he did, the way he lived, convinced Jesus that, he, that this was the Christ. This was the Messiah they'd been waiting for. And so, um, so we talked last week about how as we dive into these teachings, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for something that makes this person stand out to where we would hope after this teaching, we would say, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, and lastly, and you're going to hear me say this a lot in this study, um, is that the main purpose of this, uh, and I think what, the, what, what Peter got when he said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, is that this is, we're not selling a new philosophy or a new worldview or a new way to live. We're selling a person. This is, this is not Jesus bringing us a teaching. This is a teaching bringing us to Jesus. And that, that direction is important because at the end of this, is the, uh, at the center of this is the person doing the talking. And, and that, is what, um, that is what we're hunting for in this study, is Jesus the person, um, not a new teaching or a new way to look at the world or just a new thing. Although that's going to come too. 
Um, in fact, tonight is about that. But ultimately, uh, we're going to say it over and over again, is this teaching is drawing us to Jesus, not the other way around. So tonight we're going to get into Jesus' first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. I think we're going to... There we go. Um, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... And he dives into this teaching. So this is kind of Jesus' inaugural address, if you want to put it that way. So far, what's happened in the narrative is Jesus has um, grown up. He, uh, he came and was uh, baptized. Um, he endured the temptations. And then imme- almost immediately after that, he chooses disciples. And so he just kind of got some of the starting things. And then this is his first real teaching after all those kind of setup things have happened. So this is kind of the opening teaching. This is, the, this is his inauguration speech, if you want to put it that way. And he starts this thing out with the Beatitudes, which we're a little bit familiar with. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, that John read to us tonight. But I think these cause a lot of confusions because we really don't know what to do with the Beatitudes. Um, and we have a tendency to treat them like either commands or proverbs. Like this is, this is what the Bible is, how the Bible is telling us to live or, or maybe this is just proverbial wisdom that we see. And, and I don't think it's actually either. I think it's actually gospel, which means good news, which means it's both good and new. Um, and I think that's what's happening here. And, um, and we have to be careful as we dive into these that we don't try to cram them into a box that we already have. Because I don't think the Beatitudes will do that. And I think if we try to do that, we'll come out frustrated. Um, And we're going to talk about why. So these these kind of teachings... I feel like I'm louder than normal. These kind of teachings um, are new because of two elements that I want to pull out. Um, The first is there is stylistic. The way these happen. There, if, if we read these, it's just observations. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so there, something happens here. There's nothing imperative in this language. There is no command here. There is nothing that tells us to do anything. There's, nothing, there's, not, even a, there's not even any covenant language here. There's not any, if you will do this, then I will do this. That's not even in here. At best... These are just observations. These are just ways of saying, this is, this, is, this is what is. Blessed are those who. And we actually talked a couple weeks ago, and this is something I'm just going to kind of throw out there to think about. I, I can't say for sure. We talked a few weeks ago about what the new covenant might look like um, when you have Jeremiah saying that there's going to be a new covenant where God will write his law on our hearts. And so what would a, but we also know that it's going to hinge on Jesus' sacrifice and that he's paid the price for all of our sins. And so we talked about what might a law look like if there's no like, threat of punishment to it. What, what might it look like if God um, brings his, his Torah, his law to our hearts, but, there, but Jesus has already paid any penalty if we break it. And I think this might be what that looks like. It might just look like more like an offer. Like, blessed are those who. Blessed are those who do these things. Blessed are those who obey these, these things. So that's just something to think about. But there's something much bigger than the, uh, than the style that's given here, which is important. And the bigger thing is that they're not true. The Beatitudes are absolutely not true. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
I've just grabbed a few here for the sake of example, but if you've lived long at all, you know this is not how the world works. Generally, the, those who mourn aren't comforted, or at least they're not overwhelmed with comfort. When you think back over the Holocaust, and you think back over some of the refugee crisis we have right now, you even think of like inner city moms who lose their kids. Like You don't see comfort swarming in on these people. We don't see a lot of those who mourn overwhelmed with comfort. If you've done any business, if you've worked in the business world at all, you know for the most part the meek don't inherit squat. Like, when we look, I mean, look at our president right now. And really any president, not even our president right now, but any president. I, I doubt you can find a meek person who would ever reach that level. CEOs of companies, like, you don't usually see the meek inheriting. This is just not the way the world works. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is kind of funny. It's, it's, the Greek word is, is uh, I, I honestly think righteousness is a pretty good translation, but what we do with the word righteousness nowadays in the church is a little off because we tend to think of somebody who's righteous. We think of righteousness as kind of like holiness, right? It's like somebody who doesn't sin would be righteous. That's not really the Greek word. The Greek word is probably closer to justice in, in our language. It's to do rightly, to do what the right thing, the just thing um, so really, probably a better translation is justice, if we're, if we're translating to the way we kind of use the words. And a few times in the New Testament, it is translated justice, this Greek word. Um, and so this is people who hunger and thirst for justice, for things to be fair, for things to be right. How many of you know people who hunger and thirst for justice and actually get satisfied? Almost none. It was one of the first things we teach our kids. Well, life's not fair. It's not fair. Well, life's not fair. Like, they've, they've got this inner hunger and thirst for justice, and we tell them, yeah, good luck. That's not how the world works. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness don't get it. Anybody getting uncomfortable yet? It's really uncomfortable having your preacher stand up and tell you the Bible's not true, right? And that hits you weird. What was our last one? Oh, merciful. Yeah, and we know this one. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Usually the merciful get walked on, right? And, this is, and, we, and we know this, which is why we have trouble with things like if someone smacks you on the right cheek, offer them up your left. And we're like, well, yeah, but. I mean, you can't just let people walk on you. I mean, get, Jesus wouldn't want us to just let people want you to be a doormat. And most of us are like, you know, I, I would, you know, never defend my, if somebody's going to steal something, I'm not going to blah, blah, blah. But boy, if they try to touch my family, you know, like, like we have our lines, like, then I'm not going to be merciful. You know, then, you know, blah, blah, which, because we know the merciful get walked on. We know this. We know this is the way the world works. So I don't think the, I don't think the Beatitudes work in any of the, any of the boxes we try to put in. It's not a command. That's not a proverb. These are not pro- see, proverbs. What proverbs are, and you can get in trouble if you don't understand the difference between a command and a proverb. A lot of people read the book of Proverbs and they think these are commands and they think that they, you know, these are things that God is commanding us to do. And that's not the way the, work, the proverbs work either. The proverbs are just observations of the way the world generally works. And then there are exceptions. And a lot of times we'll read the proverbs and, you know, the wicked, blah, blah, and the first thing you think is, I know some wicked people that have done pretty good. And like, your brain will go to the exceptions. And, and Beatitudes aren't proverbs. Beatitudes are the opposite. They're like an anti-proverb. 
there are things that they're, they're generally not true, and then there are some exceptions. And I think those exceptions are what we kind of cling to. So we're like, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Well, you know, Mother Teresa had, had ate with, with, you know, the rulers of the world. Uh, and they're like, yeah, and how many Mother Teresas have there been? Like, how often does this actually work, that, that your meekness leads you to greatness? Like, almost never. It's an exception. So we can't let the Beatitudes become either commands or Proverbs. They don't work that way. I think what's happening is Jesus is actually defining a new and different reality. And this is what we absolutely cannot miss. That this is different. He is defining something different. He's defining something new. And Jesus spent most of his teaching time doing this. And we see it all the time and we really don't know what to do with it. That he'll say, um, what is the kingdom of heaven like? Like, what, to what shall I liken it? And he'll say, it's like, a, it's like a woman who, it's like a farmer who, it's like a merchant who, it's like a fisherman who, it's like a father who. And nobody thinks to ask, why is this thing so hard to define? That you can't just tell us what it is. Like when we ask what this thing is, all you give us is what it's like. And you keep defining these with these stories and these parables and, and all this stuff. And I don't think it's Jesus being dodgy. I don't think it's like, or it's, it's not some weird Gnostic, you know, mystery that, that you have to, you know, get the right numeric code to unlock or anything. I think what's happening is he's trying to define a reality that we don't necessarily have the parameters to get. And it's because of things like the, the Beatitudes, because this is an upside down, different reality. This thing is altogether different. Living by the Beatitudes will never make you successful in this world. They just won't. You can't think, I'm going to take over the company I work for by being meek. That won't happen. Because these are not, these are the physics of the kingdom. This is a new kind of thing that doesn't work in our world. And so rather than, than reading these, these Beatitudes and trying to find a way to to cram them into our world and make them fit. I think what we were supposed to do when we read the Beatitudes was go, ah, I see you're playing by completely different rules here because none of that would work in my world. So you must be doing something different. Like, I think that was supposed to be our reaction. Like, instead, because we're Christians and we've been raised to, to, to automatically grasp this as, as part of the world, we go... Okay, it doesn't seem right, but I'll, you know, rather than go, huh, what are you talking about? Because that doesn't define any world I've ever lived in, which means maybe you're talking about a different world. Maybe you're talking about a fundamentally different kingdom. You have something else in mind. So we have to grasp right off the bat that this is completely new, except for the fact that it isn't, which is going to be our next part. So, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It has no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp to put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." We generally read this passage and we kind of pull it out by itself. Like we, and we do that with a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. We kind of pull these pericopes out and, and treat them like its own little statement of 
of faith, and we do that with this one, like Jesus is telling us the way we should live, we should let our light shine. I think it can, I think it does that. I think this teaching can be extended outside of its context and still completely work. I think this is good for all of us. But if we leave it in its original context, if you leave it when Jesus actually said it for the first time, he's talking to Jews, just to Jews. At this point, there's not a single Gentile in the picture that we know of, unless it's a, a Gentile who's converted into Judaism. And so he's standing here in front of Israel, basically, and, and teaching Israelites, and he says, blessed are these people, blessed are those people, blessed are they, this, these people. Good heavens, you're supposed to be the salt of the earth. You're supposed to be the light on the hill. Like, and so what he's kind of saying, and this is what I don't want to miss, is this has something to do with who Israel was originally called to be. And we've done this quite a bit, but we're going to look back at some of the verses that talk about origi- Israel's original call. Let's go ahead and go to the next one. I think I... Are we running off the side of the screen a little bit? Um, You are my witness, declares the Lord. This is him talking to Israel as a people in Isaiah. You are supposed to be my witness. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. That you will be a blessing. The purpose of his call to Abraham was so that these people could be a blessing to the whole rest of the world. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he says to them. What do priests do? Priests, are the, they stand between God and, and people. They're the ones who minister for the people to God. They're the ones who, and, and he was telling this whole nation, you're going to be the priests. You're going to be the ones who stand between me and the people. So something in God's original call to Israel was about them being this light, the, the salt of the earth, this light that shines God to the whole rest of the world. This was part of their call. And always had been. I think one of the prophets even said that, that Israel is the light unto the nations. This is, a, this is a term that existed in Israel already. And so when Jesus comes in, he goes, man, you're supposed to be the light of the world. Shining to the whole world. I, I don't think this is just a random generic teaching he's trying to give to anybody. Although it works that way. I think he's talking to the Jews. Like, this was your call. You were supposed to be the salt and the light. But it goes even deeper. There's another important element of Israel's call that we have to catch here from Deuteronomy. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for a treasured possession out of all the people that are on the face of the earth. And it is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. So there's something in Israel's original call Oh, there's more, sorry. Um, But it is because the Lord loves you and keeps his oath that he swore to your fathers. And the Lord has brought you out of, um, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God wants to establish, this is in Deuteronomy, this is right off the bat. He wants to establish, first and foremost, that I called you because you're small and insignificant. You're this tiny little slave nation that I can use. And so there's something in, in his call to Israel that's almost beatitude-ish. I'm going to coin that word right now. There's something in it that is, he takes this, and how does it start? I hear the cry of my people. Like that he, so there's something in his original call to Israel that sounds like the beatitude, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are, persecuted and reviled, those who are downtrodden. 
That's Israel when he first calls him. He kind of points out, I didn't call you because you're great. I called you because you're the least of all nations. There's something in this that he's trying to grasp. And this theme runs through the Bible. I mean, it happens right off the bat when they first go into the promised land. They, they overthrow Jericho just with some crazy military tactics and somehow win. And then they don't do things the way they're supposed to. And they go into their very next battle. And they, somebody named Achan takes some spoils he wasn't supposed to take. And so they go into the very first battle against Ai. And God had told them, hey, when you go in, don't take any spoils. Somebody did. And so he just pulls back a little bit. And they immediately get their butts kicked. And, the, and Jericho is this huge walled city. Ai is like this little nothing. And Ai beats them. And they turn back and they're like, what? What happened? And God was like, I didn't fight for you because you didn't do things the way I said to. So, so right off the bat, we see this theme. And then once they're in the land, they've got Gideon. And Gideon has this um, awesome scene where he's, he's already severely outnumbered. But he's going to battle because God told him just the call of Gideon. Gideon, there's a scene where Gideon gets called a mighty warrior. He says, wait a minute. I am the weakest amongst my brothers. And my family is the weakest family in our tribe. And our tribe is the weakest tribe in Israel, which is the weakest nation on the planet. So you could arguably say he's the weakest person in the world. Like I'm the weakest son of the weakest family of the weakest tribe of the weakest nation. And you've just shown up and called me mighty warrior. I don't even understand this at all. And then when he sends him out to attack the Midianites, he says, you've got too many people. He's like, if I let you attack with this many people, you're going to say that you did it on your own. And he was like, so he, makes, he finds a couple ways to cut the, cut the group down in, in to, until it reaches a point where there's no way to deny that this was God, which is what he was going for in the first place. David and Goliath, some of our favorites, that you know, you've got this small, when the, when the army is hiding from this guy, you've got this shepherd that wins. And how does he say it? The, the Lord will give me victory going in. He uses this small, insignificant nothing. How many, what's, what's, what's David's big sin? Somebody shout it out. What's that? Adultery, Bathsheba, is that what we think? No, that's absolutely not it. In terms of, in terms of punishment and in terms of impact, Bathsheba's almost nothing. Bathsheba's first son dies. In fact, there's a lot of Jewish scholars that think the only reason that story made it in was because Solomon, who's the next king, had it recorded to make sure that his lineage tracked through David because he was Bathsheba's son. And so Bathsheba would have been known as Uriah's wife originally. And so a lot of Jewish scholars think that, that there might have been some threat of Solomon not being in the kingly lineage, being Uriah's son. And so he wanted to track the story. David's big sin was a census. And that one, thousands died because David wanted to count how many people he had. And Joab, who is kind of his, every time David does wrong, Joab helps him. He's like his kind of, like when he kills Uriah, Bathsheba, he sends a note to Joab and Joab kind of fulfills it. Like Joab's the general at the time, he pulls everybody back so Uriah can die. So Joab's kind of like his, that one friend we all have that you know will help us get in trouble. That's Joab. And Joab comes to him and is like, dude, I hope your kingdom multiplies a thousand times, but you don't want to do this. Like, he, even Joab is telling him, like, because all David wants is a head count, so he can say, I am the king over this many people. And when he does it, he sets out to count heads, and God, God comes to him and he's like, okay, here's the deal. Three days of, here's your punishment for doing this. Three days of plague or 
uh, 30 years in the hands of your enemy, I think it is, or, or three years in the hands of your enemy or, or something else. I can't remember what all the punishments were, but they were huge. And I think he chooses like three days of plague and tens of thousands of Israelites die in this plague as a punishment for David wanting to go, yeah, look at me. I'm the king of a great nation. And that's the one, like in, in terms of, of real cost and real punishment, we all draw to the Bathsheba story because it's the one we know well and it's the one that kind of has an emotional impact. But, and because it's, you know, the other one isn't very American. Like we like big, we want big and grand. And as soon as David went for big and grand, something, it, it, it hit some nerve in God because the punishment is extreme for, for wanting to brag about how many people are in his kingdom. Because that's not the way God works. Jesus' temptations, if we look at them, at, the, at their core, what are the temptations? It's Satan going, if you're the son of God, do something big. Like, really show it. Like, show off a little bit here. Be, like, do a, do a trick. Do a miracle. Like, do something grand. Like, throw yourself off the temple and let angels swoop in and save you. Like, be big, man. Come on. I'll give you all the nations of the world. Like, his, the temptations at their core are to do this big. And Jesus doesn't. We see the opposite from Jesus. Paul sums it up this way. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to the world standard. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. All through the story of God's relationship to his people has been the Beatitudes at the core. There's something in the small, the meek. There's something in the broken and the, and the downtrodden that draws God. God uses the spiritually poor, the mourning, the meek, the merciful, the trampled on, to show forth His glory. He always has. Paul said, when I am weak, then am I strong. His strength is made perfect in my weakness, is the way Paul said it. So Jesus kind of flips the script here when He declares the Beatitudes, but it's not really flipping anything brand new. He's saying, this is the way it was always supposed to be. You're, you're the light. You were supposed to be showing this kind of life. You're supposed to be advancing this kind of kingdom, this upside-down reality to the world. Which I think is why he says this next part. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth will pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's accomplished. So if we keep this all together, he defines this new reality. And then he says, you're the light. You're the salt. And, and, and it feels like the light has turned in on itself. At this point, Jewish is, or the, Israel, the Jewish nation, is, is very exclusive and, and uh, not very hospitable. They're very closed off from the world. He's like, you were supposed to shine to the world. You were supposed to send out this incredible love of God and and through your smallness and your meekness and your 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 insignificance 
And then he sums all that up by saying, so I didn't come to, to, to abolish anything. I didn't come to stop anything. I came to finally fulfill it. I came to do it the way it was supposed to be done. I came to actually uh, do the Torah the way it was supposed to happen. And this is something we kind of get mixed up with on Jesus sometimes. Some people treat him like a teacher, but not a revolutionary. Like he came to kind of teach Torah, but not change anything. And other people treat him like a revolutionary, but not a teacher. He came to change everything and restart everything, but not teach the Torah. And I think what we have to hold in tension is that he's actually doing both. He's being revolutionary by teaching the Torah, not undoing the Torah and starting some new thing, but also not uh, just continuing on with something that already was. He's, he's teaching the Torah in a revolutionary way by teaching it the way it was supposed to be. So, um, so this brings us back to Jesus. And ultimately, he is the Beatitudes. From his, from his humble birth in a, in a stable all the way through to growing up a carpenter's son in Nazareth in the backwoods of the backwoods. We talked about this last week. Israel's insignificant in the greater Roman kingdom. And Nazareth is like the place in Israel that people make fun of because it's clear up in the sticks. And that's where Jesus grows up. His baptism, John didn't get it. And, that's, and, and this is what we missed. When he shows up to be baptized, John's like, what are you doing? I should be baptized by you. John's thinking, our, like the way we think. Like, you're above me. You should be the one doing the baptizing. I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, that's not, that's not this kingdom. That's not the way we do things in this kingdom. We've, things are flipped here. The temptations we talked about. Choosing his disciples. The way that every rabbi, back, every rabbi, I mean, today still has disciples, and th- so this isn't a new thing. When Jesus chose disciples, he's using a pattern that already existed. This isn't brand new. All rabbis chose disciples, and what happened is all kids went to kind of elementary school, if you want to call it that, and then they, if they were the best and the brightest, advanced to, advanced to secondary school. If you didn't advance, you went and worked in your father's business, and you were no longer in school. And then of those, a few advanced to the next level. And the rest were sent to work in their father's business. And then of those, a rabbi would come um, to the best and brightest and say, you, follow me. And that was actually the, the words they would use to invite. So when Jesus says, disciples, follow me, he's actually choosing the, the form that already existed for rabbis. And, and so out of, out of the, the best and the brightest of, of the school, he would, they would go, you, follow me. And they would become a disciple of a rabbi, which was your only road to really become a rabbi yourself. And so when Jesus shows up and he chooses fishermen and tax collectors, what we can automatically know because these guys are working these jobs is these are failed disciples. These are guys who nobody else wanted to pick. At some level of their schooling, they did not get picked to go on to the next level. They got sent to work in their father's businesses. And these are the people that Jesus goes, you're the one I want. The one that nobody else wanted. The one that all the other rabbis said, nah or the one, that, the one that didn't get to graduate, you're the one I want, and you're the one I want, and you're the one I want. Constantly flipping the script. Even the sermon, this is in, like, this is, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, and that kind of has a cool sound to us now, but that means this is a sermon, this is an outdoor backwoods sermon. 
This isn't happening in a big temple. This isn't happening, you know, in the, you know, this, these are the days of where the, the, of the Roman Senate, you know, where they were, they built huge coliseums where people would speak and do things and, and, uh, and Jesus is outside. And some people love camping, but if you've ever spent hours just sitting on the hard ground, you know this is not a glorious, you know, thing. This is an outdoor speech that's happening here. <clears throat> Even with his, like his miracles, when Jesus would do a miracle, does it ever seem weird that he's like, hey, don't tell anybody I did this? Like, you, you remember how many times he quiets down miracles? He'll do something big and he'll like, tell no one that this has happened. Even after Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, awesome. God has shown you this, not men. Tell no one that I'm the Christ. Like he's constantly trying to keep things almost suppressed. Blessing kids. We, we've talked about that. Like when he's in the middle of this big teaching, kids run up to him and his own disciples were the first to go, hey, stay back. The master's teaching. Like, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 I'll stop everything. Bring the kids. Like, and, he, and he calls them in. He shuts everything down. Shuts the parents down. The big, he shuts down. And this is a, this is a, a culture you know, where kids were fairly insignificant. You know, where kids weren't really valued. And, and he calls them in. He shuts down the parents and calls... The kids in. Obviously, foot washing. We, we all know these stories where the lowest of the low job, we've all heard foot washing sermons, and Jesus is the one who washes the feet. And he says, Now, since you've seen me do this, you go, do a, you go and do likewise. There's a time when he says, The foxes of the field have dens to live in, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Like he, he didn't own anything or do anything. So we constantly see through Jesus' life the Beatitudes. That he was the living, breathing Beatitudes. So it's, it's, it's Jesus that we're seeing in those. So how do we respond to this? And this is the tough one. Um, there are two kingdoms. And that's the thing we've got to get mostly tonight. That, that we live in the tension between two kingdoms. This is the kingdom of God. And this is the, the kingdom of God is a little bit weird to talk about because Jesus even said, don't say, lo, there is the kingdom or here is the kingdom for the kingdom of God is within you. This weird enigmatic statement. And we, we tend to think of it in terms of heaven, like that will go some, someday. Jesus didn't talk about it that way. He talked about it like it's now. Like it's this kind of dueling, warring kingdom. When we went through the book of Acts, we talked about how he sent his disciples out the exact same way a Roman king would send out heralds to announce there's a new king on the throne. And they would go about saying, you know, such and such is the new king, basically. Jesus is saying, now go, be my witnesses. And he sends them out to basically say, Jesus is sitting on the throne right where he's supposed to be. Except at the time, he wasn't. Augustus was. And so we had to say, so who's, who's on the throne? And, they, and it's, the obvious answer is both. These are two totally different kingdoms. Two totally different kings. There's a scene in Revelation where, um, where it's the seventh trumpet, whatever that means. I don't spend a lot of time in Revelation either. That one scares me too. But um, where, he, where it says... Finally, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. Where it's this declaration that someday 
in the future, the kingdom of our God and of his Christ will finally win over and conquer the kingdoms of this world. But there's a clear delineation between the two, that these are not the same thing. These are two very different realities. In this reality, in the kingdoms of this world, meekness will not help you inherit. It just won't. It's not going to help you take over the company you work at if you go in meek. It doesn't work that way. Hungering and thirsting for justice usually makes you more and more dissatisfied with the kingdom of this world. It just does. The more you focus on injustice, the more you focus on how much this world is unfair for some, where the fact that the, the zip code you're born into almost dictates the kind of life you're going to have and how unjust that is. And, I mean, in a million different ways. I mean, if there's parts of this world where if you are born there, you know, you're, you're beating the odds to make it to adulthood. You know, there are places in this country where if you're born in the Blue Mountains right now, or the, yeah, then it, it means you're going to have a certain kind of life. If you're born in the inner city, it means you're going to have a certain kind of life. And that's not fair. And if you focus hard on that and really dig in, you don't get satisfied. You get really, really upset. And it burns in you. And the reason why is because we can't use the physics of the kingdom of God to define the kingdoms of this world. That we're stuck somewhere in between. This is the tension we live in. That if every time we, we, do, every time we show mercy, um, if, if, you're, if you're merciful with someone, it doesn't mean you're going to come out unscathed. It doesn't mean if I show this person mercy, they won't hurt me. Because if you show them mercy, they may hurt you again. I mean, when Jesus says you have to forgive somebody 70 times, 7 times, that means whatever one less of 70 times 7 is, you got hurt that many times. Like, you kept putting yourself out there to get hurt again and putting yourself out there to get hurt again. Like, we have a, like, a, I'll forgive you, but I'm not going to forget. Like, that's, that's not kingdom of God. That's kingdom of this world. Kingdom of God says, I have to put myself out there again. I have to put myself out there again. I have to put myself out there again until I reach whatever the 70 times 7 number is. So we live in this dichotomy. We live in this tension of, the, of every time I show mercy, I might lose ground in the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of God advances a little. Every time I'm meek, you know, I might lose something here, but the kingdom of God advances a little. Every time I fight for justice... Yeah, I may come home and accomplish nothing, but the kingdom of God advances a little more. Every time someone persecutes me and reviles me, yeah, that stings like crazy, but the kingdom of God advances a little more. We live kind of a foot in each kingdom, and that creates a tension in the way we live. Bill and I were talking about this a little bit, and, and he had said something to me that stuck. He said, yeah, the Beatitudes work perfectly if, if your definition, definition of success is hanging on a cross. <laughs> yeah, then they work just right. Yep, perfect success, as long as that's your goal. Because that's, Jesus said, now take up your cross and follow me. Quiet. So tonight as we go to the scripture, or go to the... Uh, table as we respond to the scripture. Go to the table and worship with one more song. Above all else, I just want to recognize the delineation. That you can't 
automatically assume that the things that work in the kingdom of God are going to work in the kingdoms of this world and vice versa. Sometimes you just take a hit in, in the kingdom of this world to advance the kingdom of God. Sometimes you just have to. And, uh, and this is one thing, this is an interesting twist on the commands in Proverbs, is I think the commands in Proverbs are a pretty good um, crossover, like a pretty good way to know how someone from the kingdom of God has to function in the kingdoms of this world. Because like, if you think about it, when the kingdom of God have completely overtaken the kingdom of this world, there will be no more need for commands in Proverbs. Because we'll all live in the, in the radiance of, of God himself. So the commands in Proverbs are, are where those two meet. So I'm not trying to undo those and say that, that those don't mean anything or matter. Because I think they are how we try to bring the Beatitudes into this kingdom, but Jesus would have made a terrible businessman. He would have made a horrible politician. He would have never made it as an athlete. He would have, he would have been an awful lawyer. These, these things don't cross over. This isn't a map to success in the normal definition of success. These aren't the ways you advance in this kingdom, in the kingdom of the world. This is how the kingdom of God works the small, the insignificant. This is the kingdom we're pushing and advancing. This is the kingdom that Jesus um, was advancing. That's why I went to Pilate and Pilate was like, are you a king then? And Jesus was like, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my, my disciples would fight. Like Jesus knew how the kingdoms of this world work. He knew the rules of this kingdom. He's like, if I, if I was of this world, if my kingdom was of this world, yeah, my, my disciples would fight. But... My kingdom's not of this world. That's not how we play. That's not the rules we play by. We play by different rules in my kingdom. So as we go to the table, um, as always, these, these are the symbols of our kingdom. Um, where other kingdoms, you know, have fists and lightning bolts and eagles and whatever else, big shows of strength, we have a broken body and poured out blood. Those are the symbols of this kingdom. 